Hello everyone and welcome to the Phileas Club. This is episode number 66 for February 2016. Hello everyone and welcome back to the Phileas Club. This is episode number I don't even know it's 66. Uh, for February 2016, I'm Patrick Beja, your host. I'm calling you and everyone from Finland at the moment. I'm actually in the countryside. And uh, with me today, I have three amazing hosts. First, thank you for being back, Turkey. And my understanding is that you're also not in your home country at the moment. Yeah, I'm in uh, foggy London right now. So oh, so you're in enjoying beer, I'm sure, which you can't enjoy in uh, Saudi Arabia? Oh, yeah. I'm enjoying the weather here. It's so nice. It's lovely. I'm never coming back. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying you're, yeah, it was so sweet on Twitter uh, yesterday. You were, seeing, you were saying how you're missing your wife. Um, it's unbelievable. This is the first time I traveled alone since I got married. And so you're not enjoying it. I'm not enjoying it. I got used to having her around. She's, she, she usually drags me around and shows me where to go and what to do. <laughs> so basically, no one's telling you what to do now, so you're miserable. She, she, she also tells me what to wear, for God's sake. It's you're making so a, complicated. You're making a great case for freedom. Uh, <laughs> that's pretty awesome. Uh, we also have Eric, who is uh, back with us from Vietnam. How's it going? Hello from my adopted country. Uh, of course, not my own country, but uh, it is hot, sweaty, but uh, beautiful weather here. Yeah. What's, so you're, oh, I don't know if you can talk about the big change in your life. Um, the I, I I will be taking a new job. I cannot okay. reveal the company until after I actually reveal okay. you know start the new job. Okay, so I I almost made a, a big blunder here. So okay, thank you, thank you, thank myself for not doing it. Uh, yeah, so thank you for being here from Vietnam. What, what time is it for you? Luckily, it's a reasonable time. It's four o'clock in the afternoon. Unlike the last time when I actually didn't make your show because it was at <laughs> one in the morning and I slept right through it. So I am humbly, humbly apologizing to you, but uh, excited to be back again today. Yeah, oh no yeah, worries. he did that to us, didn't he? <laughs> I did. I, I stood you all up the last time, so it's uh, it's great to be back. Yeah, thank you for being here. Uh, it's uh, 11 a.m. for me, uh, 9 a.m. in London for Turkey, uh, 4 p.m. in Vietnam for uh, for Eric. What a wonderful world we'll live in with Skype. And a newcomer to the show, we have Annie, who is actually from France. She's she's French, and I figured, you know, I'm I'm in Finland now for a little while at least, and I have uh, a bunch of things I want to talk about about moving to Finland. Uh, but I figured we needed someone from France to to be the French person, the resident French person on the show, at least for this episode. Uh, so thank you for being here, Annie. Oh, thank you very much for having me. Can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Because um, you also have kind of an international background, as I think almost everyone who's been on this show. Yeah, well, I was born and raised in France, in Toulouse, to be exact. And then I moved to the U.S. for college, and I stayed for 20 years. <laughs> how, how, where, where did you live in the U.S.? In the West, in okay. Utah. Nice. So yeah, it, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't with uh, some of those, you know, liberal coasters from California or, or you know, New York or something no, like that. No, to my great chagrin. To my great <laughs> chagrin, no. 
<laughs> All right. So you stayed uh, 20 years. That's amazing. Yes. Yes. And now I'm back to France. I've been back in France for, for 10 years. So. All right. Yep. Which one do you prefer? You have to choose one. Oh, jeez. Okay, oh. you can't. I know. <laughs> I know something about that. Um, all right. Well, uh, you know what? I think we have uh, an amazing team, as usual. And uh, let's get into the show. I'm, as always, going to be going first, just to warm everyone up. Um, I think the thing I want to talk about, I haven't been... I've been following... From afar, literally, uh, the things that have been, have been having, happening in France. And uh, I know that there is uh, basically both sides of the political spectrum are relatively weak at the moment. The, the left is imploding. The right uh, side is being apparently indicted <laughs> everywhere for well, not indicted, but uh, called as I don't even know how that is. Uh, investigated. How, investigated, I guess. Yes, thank you. Not indicted. That's an important distinction. Um, but I, I, what I wanted to talk about is something I'm sure a lot of us have experienced in our various uh, travels um, is how it feels to move from one place to the other. And what has struck me um, when I've been when I've arrived in, in Finland in the first few uh, weeks that I've been here um, and the cultural differences that have struck me. And there are three things that I that I noted um, The first one is the incredible amount of uh, different types of garbage cans they have for recycling. You know, I thought I knew what recycling was. In France, we have like three different types maybe. And it's like, oh, you separate the, um, the regular trash from the plastics and, and cardboard. And then you have the metal on the other side or something to that effect. Well, no, it's the... Plastic, cardboard, um, metal in one, and then they sort it at the plant or something. And then in the other one, you have the glass. And we had the three different ones, and, and it was fine. Here, there are, I don't know, seven or eight. It's incredible. Like, you, you get to, to the, the uh, ground floor in the building, and you have, like, eight different cans. And, of course, it's in Finnish. So I don't I understand a little bit of Swedish and there's a little bit sometimes, but most of it is in Finnish. And I don't how do I deal with this? They have like just to give you an idea, they have um bio trash, which is everything that is biodegradable, which goes in one thing which you have to put in biodegradable plastic bags, of course. Um you have the burnable waste, which they use as a source of energy. So anything that is a, a, a lot of the things are, are burnable, including, you know, light plastics and uh, cardboard and uh, so a lot of those things. But nothing that is wet. Basically, if it's been hosting, you know, if you put food in it, there's probably still uh, wet stuff. So you shouldn't put that in the burn waste. And then you have the metal. You have the uh, household uh uh cardboard. You have the packing cardboard. There are two different types of cardboards. Um, and you have the regular trash and a bunch of others. It that was pretty surprising to me, and I'm sure that you know in France we have a little bit of recycling. Um, I'm curious if you guys have recycling in Vietnam and Saudi Arabia. Vietnam? Um, no, not really. You know, Vietnam is the profile of a lot of uh, emerging countries and developing countries, particularly on the poor side of the spectrum, where environmental concerns. Uh, don't register that high in the in the list <laughs> right. of kind of life's overall concerns. The vast majority of people here, you know, the average income is about six thousand dollars a year. 
So people are much more concerned with, uh, you know, just kind of getting through the day. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really, you know, and that was the case when I lived in, in Africa as well, in Kinshasa. Um, I mean, these are, these are very much first world concerns. The reality is, of course, that people here are the victims of environmental degradation. Um, so Ho Chi Minh City is a city of 11 million people that's at water level. So, and we have torrential rains that come in, the, in during the rainy season. And so when the rivers get swollen, they can't drain to the ocean. And so when the oceans are rising, it simply makes it much more difficult for people to kind of navigate through to maybe one meter of water that comes in the heavy days of rain. Oh. So they are the victims of it. But at the same time, we're seeing here as well a major shift from China of the manufacturing. Nike now doesn't make shoes in China anymore. They make them mostly in Vietnam. So the air here is getting much, much worse. But yet you consumers so, in the West who purchase the Nike shoes are just shifting the environmental cost to places like Vietnam because Europe and the United States and Japan don't want those, uh, that pollution there. Yeah. So again, they're the, they're the victims here of the environment, but at the same time to put the burden on the individual whose carbon footprint is relatively small compared to what we Westerners and, and people in the first world do. And that's why I'm playfully complaining about, well, pointing out the number of <laughs> trashes that we have here but honestly i think it's awesome i'm i'm well awesome in the sense that i feel like i'm doing a little bit of something that i can to to help uh with the with the environmental concerns so uh i'm all for that uh turkey obviously you guys are are oil rich so you're making sure that you recycle as much as you can right Why? We're rich. We don't need to recycle. Right. <laughs> Just buy new stuff. <laughs> All right. Uh, second thing <laughs> that, um, that sort of uh, surprised me a little bit was, I think in two or three occasions, I've seen workers, uh, like construction workers or uh, people who were redoing the paint in the building or something like that, um, and they were women. And, you know, I know that women can paint uh, a, a building or do even construction work. They were kind of burly, strong women, as, as you would imagine, you know, a, a man who is doing construction work is kind of uh, stronger than a man that is going to sit at, at a computer all day. And I know this in, in, intellectually, but it was kind of shocking how shocking it was for me to see a woman do what I was, would traditionally associate with a man's job in, even in France, which is a relatively, um, you know, equal country in that regard. So that was kind of a surprise as well. Um, I, I greeted the person in the, in the staircase and I was like, oh, you're a woman in work overalls or something. And uh, I was surprised at has, how surprised I was. But uh, yeah, the legend of um, more equal... Uh, uh, work conditions in the north is not a legend. Apparently, it, it actually happens. Can Can I add something? Oh, to this? please do, please do. Actually, <laughs> another reason I wanted uh, you to be on the show is that there's a, a severe lack of uh, female participants, and I'm going <laughs> to do my best to try and remedy that. And it, it's been mentioned to me a few times in uh, in some instances, so yeah, I, yeah. I'm aware. And uh, yeah, go ahead. So, so I was equally surprised in France actually because I went to return. Uh, I had a problem with my mower, with my lawnmower, and I went to the to Castorama, so it's a it's a big uh, chain, and it was a woman who troubleshot. She was doing the troubleshooting, and she actually told me what was wrong with it. 
And it's uh, are you so sure fun. it wasn't a man? Are you sure? No, no, makeup and everything. Wow. And and uh, I was very surprised by that. And then afterwards, I thought, well, why shouldn't a woman be able to tell what's wrong with a mower? You know, it's like you you're just being silly. So even women do this. Yeah. No, that's exactly. You know, I think that's exactly my my point. We we know that this is possible, but still, when it happens, it's. There are very honestly very few jobs that a man can do that a woman can't. And especially since and this is this sounds like the unobvious thing to say, but still, when it happens, we're surprised. And we shouldn't be surprised, is I think all of our points. But um so yeah, just some food for thought there. Um that even me, a raging feminist, was surprised that I saw this. So um, uh, you, you're just a French capitalist. I guess so. Well, you know, you can be both. Um, and last thing is, I think the most important thing of, of all, uh, in this conversation is I was very surprised at how easy that transition, um, from countries was, it was really, um, you know, we, we had a place we were moving into when we, um, when we arrived in Finland, we had our stuff that arrived maybe four days after we landed. Um, I set up the computer and, and that was it. I was done. I had moved across, you know, the continent. And I think part of it is because of how much of my life is led online. Um, my professional life is almost entirely online. And a lot of my friends are online as well. I would say 50% of my life was is lived online. So I'm, uh, you know, I just that whole part of it, 50% of my life just didn't change. It was like I took the bus and I arrived somewhere else and it was just fine. And I've moved across, you know, uh, the world a few times in my life. And, and certainly, I'm sure if, it, if I moved to, you know, let's say Japan, it would feel a little bit different. And I guess I'll experience this next month. Um, well, it, it, I think there's one key difference, though, is that you're moving from kind of developed country to developed country where things generally work as they're supposed to. You call up the internet company, they schedule an appointment at 4 o'clock. They may come at 4.15, but they're there generally on time. Um, but when you go into, I think that the real challenge for you would be interesting to see if you go into a developing country where you don't speak the language, where nothing works, where, you know, nothing, no one's on time, you know, where you have to, you know, probably bribe people just to get anything done, where you can't speak the language, you don't understand the customs. So actually just getting from point A to point B, you can't use the telephone, you know, so that's a situation here in Vietnam where nothing is reliable. Is it that um, bad you know, in it, Vietnam? I thought it was relatively... No, Vietnam is, is much like India, much like parts of China, much like Africa, South Asia, where things just generally don't work the first or second time or even third or fourth time you try to do things. Um, it just takes enormous amounts of patience. It's particularly difficult for those of us who don't speak the language. Um, you know, and so it's... And, and it really gives you, being a foreigner in a country like this where you don't understand how anything works and you're dependent on other people to help you get things done, you start to have a very different perception of migrants in the United States or now in Europe, the situation of the, the Middle Eastern, South Asian migrants and North African who are coming, how vulnerable you feel. And I think that's, that would be an interesting, you know, again, this is an authoritarian country. It's a political and legal system I don't understand with very tight regulation on what you can say. Um, you feel like you can be locked up at any time and you have no recourse. So that those are interesting kind of, you know, so I'd be interested to hear what it's like for you to go from, say, a first world to a third world or, you know, developed to developing country. And well, well, I think keep, that... keep in mind, you just moved to your wife's country. 
True. So, yeah. So 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 you had someone who knew exactly what to do. And, yeah, and, yeah, for sure. And, and, and another thing, also, depending on which country you go to, difficulties will change. If you come to Saudi, you're going to go through hell. Because in Saudi, you can't get a phone line, you can't get anything without an ID. And you have to wait until you get an issued a resident ID before you can even apply for anything, for example. Mm. Yeah, no, well, that's, I think that's exactly why I wanted to talk about this here, to get you guys' perspective on this, who have maybe had a different experience. Um, I still think, though, that this change has been incredibly more in- easy it's it's been a lot easier if i want to speak proper english um than it would have been 20 years ago when the internet wasn't what it is um it, of course it's a lot more difficult when you go to other places but you know it it's even moving from france to finland i'm sure would have been a little bit more confusing or not even just confusing but the 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 unity of the developing world has become a lot higher and the uniform i don't want to say uniformity because that is sort of reducing it a little bit, making it sound like less than, you know, it's losing value because it's more uniform. But it's making things easier where... I'm wondering if it isn't just, you know, if you have the internet, the internet part of your life is going to be the same wherever you go. Now, granted, you you might not get the internet installed easily. Um, but even for you guys, that part of it has been consistent at least when it wouldn't have existed before the internet existed right you don't seem well you talk about the internet as if it's a singular thing as if there's one internet if you move to beijing you have no facebook no youtube no twitter you don't get any to the u.s sites there's no french news sites you don't get to le monde you get none of that if you go to iran you get the iranian internet the russian internet now is far different than the rest of the world's internet Uh, brazil is even talking about kind of censoring and controlling certain parts of it so it depends on where in the world you move that your definition of Internet may not apply. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you for shutting down everything I say with <laughs> justification. Uh, how, is the, the, how different is the Internet in Saudi Arabia, Turkey? I've never actually, actually asked you this. Uh, well, it's, it depends on wh- which part of the country you're in and the oh, really? situation. So I'm, for me, I'm, I'm kind of the lucky one. I have fiber optics internet. So No, but I, I mean in terms of censoring censorship. parts of it and censorship. Uh, it's, and... it's not as bad. It's not even close to Iran or China uh, because we do have access to most of the stuff. Uh, the only stuff we don't, they really are aggressive in blocking are pornography and anti-government propaganda. Mm. Other than that, Facebook, complete access almost, unless a, a Facebook page has pro, uh, pornography, then they block it. They oh, only so block they can page. block individual yes, parts of that, Facebook. Yeah, that's, that's the policy they're following. They don't block the entire website. They just block the parts that pisses them off. So they, how, do you know how they do it technically? Like the URL is not yeah, accessible? Yeah, usually, usually okay. it's the URL. Yeah. It's, uh, sometimes they do it so uh, poorly that you just need to switch to an SSL a secure mm. connection to the same URL, suddenly it works. Okay. And unsecure, it won't work, it's blocked. So, But uh, they, they're not as aggressive, which is surprising for me, so, honestly, that they're not as aggressive as other countries where they just go in and they block the entire website. Like uh, Pakistan blocked the entire YouTube for a while until right, right. YouTube launched their own uh, Pakistan version of uh, YouTube. So 
Which has but, different content. Yeah, different content that they monitor and uh, they just uh, do whatever the government says they can have and can't have. Okay. So, so overall, I think we are compared to a lot of countries that uh, that are controlling and censoring their internet. We're doing pretty well. All right. So I guess still overall, Annie and I are the lucky ones where we live. I suppose. Right, right. But I want to add, you know, when I moved back to France after 20 years away, pretty much, it was a culture shock for me. Ah. Because I could understand everything people said. I could understand all the words, but sometimes not the meaning of the words. I had gotten used to so many U.S. specific ways. For Can you instance, give us an example? Yeah. Yeah. For instance, uh, the first time somebody told me, no, you can't park here because the like a pay parking lot. Uh, I w we were going to an event. <laughs> My sister was in the back of the car and the guy tells me, no, you, it's full. And so I was trying to back up and my sister rolls down her window. It's like, wait a minute, you have, you can negotiate this. And she started negotiating and she had to teach me again, the art of negotiating because in France, people say no a lot just because they just, you know, wait, I don't, I don't get it. The, the parking space they, was empty, but it, they told you, you couldn't park there. Right. They had reserved a whole level of the, the parking area for whatever needs they had ah. and they were not taking just regular people that were coming in and and so my sister just negotiated it and we were in you know two minutes later we were parked but, but you have to negotiate that's the thing in france to get things done like if you want 10 years back if i wanted to return an item at a store they would frequently say no you can't do that It's changed. In the meantime, it's changed. But they would say no. And my sister would just negotiate it. <laughs> and it worked, you know. So I learned to negotiate things again. Uh, that's... So that, that was different. Uh, also, health insurance. I figured, oh, I'll, I'll know what health insurance is going to be like because I used to live here. Well, there are so many acronyms. I had no, you know, I, I didn't know what they were talking about. Um, and so it took me a while. So... Even going from first world to first world, it was a bit of a culture shock, I must admit, at yeah. first. And I'm sure some of those culture shocks are going to, you know, I'm going to slowly realize what they are in, in Finland and in, in the north as well. I'm sure there are going to be some things. Um, But I know, think you make, just... a good, you make a good point on uh, so much of our lives now is led on the Internet that mm. that part doesn't change much. Right, right. And, and that yeah. wasn't the case 10 years ago. Yeah, it's just, you know, all of, all, all of my, you know, Twitter, I don't use Facebook as much, but Twitter, the podcasts, all of this is still the same. I'm sure if it was a, a very different country, I think when you, you're, we're all right here. Uh, if you go from first world to first world, that the transition is a lot easier than it would have been a few years ago. But of course, there are still places where uh, things would make you feel very different about it. But um All right. Yeah, Japan. You'll 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 find that in Japan. One one very kind of final point. You live in a country. Well, you lived in a country, France. France is particularly difficult. You know, I grew up there. I worked there. I've lived there for a long time. I speak fluent French. The the French have a very kind of unique view on kind of customer service on how people. Yeah, we do. You know, interact. Yep, and it's not easy. So I think you're going to find that when you go to other countries, it's actually a lot easier than France. Yeah. I always kind of every time I needed to do something at the bank or at Orange or something like with the IT services, I never expected to get it done on the first time. <laughs> and in the U.S., I would always expect it to get it resolved on the first time. Right. And that's just a very different approach to customer service that you get.
Yeah, I mean, in Japan, I, I'll be uh, curious to see how it works now. I've lived there for a few years, I've often said, uh, in the early 2000s. And uh, it was relatively efficient, but the Japanese people can't... They're so <sighs> clumsy, but they really... they're. Not, that You're would be about entire... to generalize 120 uh, but... million people, so be very yes. careful with what yeah. you're saying. Well, next. <laughs> didn't didn't you just generalize about <laughs> you know, 17 you know, million you know, people in top, France? You know, I'm talking about customer service. Yes, I'd be happy to generalize about that in France. <laughs> you lived in in Tokyo, right? Uh, Tokyo and Kyoto. Yeah, Kyoto's different. Come on. It's no, yeah, lot. no, it's very different. But I think Japan could be its own entire episode. So I'm not going to launch into that. But honestly, believe me, that there there are. Very strong cultural differences that are very, you know, you can feel when you're in Japan. Yeah, well. I know. But, uh, I've, I've, I've experienced it. It's just, I think, when I was in Osaka and Kyoto and th- those areas, I felt like people there are more willing to help and more understanding and way nicer than the people in Tokyo. It's just... Well, yeah, like, sure, it's, sure. It's, it's almost yeah. like two different countries. Well, that's, that's the that's same true. as Paris and Marseille and Paris exactly. and the rest of the country, New York and the rest of the country. The big cities always are going to be kind of tougher and more, a little bit more abrasive. All right, Turkey, why don't you let us know what's been happening in your corner of the world? Well, there's so much stuff going on. I can't talk about all of it. Okay. Uh, let's see. There's, uh, I think the two uh, major topics right now back in Saudi is there's a lot of talk about uh, Saudi Arabia going... Uh, sending in troops into Syria, ground troops. And uh, that's uh, getting different reactions from the people, those who are supporting such a move and those who are opposing it. And it's uh, really what becoming prompted, a big Because that's quite a drastic action. What, what prompted it? Uh, it's, uh, it's ISIS. And uh, I think the number one reason is the re- uh, Turkey wants to go in uh, Saudi needs to support uh, Turkey in this, and uh, they have the whole Russian problem that Russia is standing there and supporting the regime. So I think it's more, it depends on who you ask. So personally, I think it's more of a political move. It's uh, some way for the Saudi government to show that it's serious. It's uh, starting a new leaf. They already have a war in in Yemen they are have no problem willing to go into Syria and uh, to stand against Iran specifically and its influence in the region uh so i think that's i th- that that's been a lot of talk about this and uh, people so basically really iraq, divided about it iraq is really becoming the proxy war for i guess the entire world now yeah, um, Syria is becoming the proxy war, and it, it's, and I don't know, it's it's just getting out of control. That the whole situation is getting out of control. Uh, is that the it, way it feels in the Middle East as well? Everything's getting out of control in this. Yeah, region? yeah, yeah. Everybody thinks it's getting out of control. Every, nobody at all expected this to last this long. That war should have been done by now. But And uh, as soon as the regime was almost losing, uh, Russia came in and supported the regime. Uh, when the opposition was winning, the ISIS Daesh came in and started uh, making a lot of trouble. And it's, it's just a, a little crazy. And uh, I th- the other reason why Saudi wants to go into Syria is uh, the Daesh influence here in Saudi. Uh, it's These people are just crazy they they 
have zero morality in what they do. It's to the point where we have members of Daesh here in Saudi who would decide to join Daesh. They would actually kill family members. Uh, Which is something especially... That's really bad because within Saudi society, you never do that. It's, it's, it's the lowest of the low. And especially if that family member is directly related to you, if he's your father, your uncle, or your brother, that's even worse. So, Well, I think have... that would be considered pretty bad in any culture. But what you're saying is in, in the Middle East, this is... Here, it's, yeah. it's, it's even t- t- 10 times worse because family is everything in the Middle East. Mm. Uh, you have a tribe, you have a family. It's all about your family. Uh, people go out of their way to support their families. And uh, two guys, uh, yesterday, I think it happened, they even videotaped it and published it online. They went and they f- attacked their cousin, who is a member of the Saudi forces, and they killed him, and they recorded it, and they published it. And they had, and they even showed their faces, their names. They had n- no problem of coming out and saying, we just killed him. We, are, we support Daesh. We are calling for the downfall of the Saudi government and so on. And when so, you have people like that, it's just, it, it's, it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. Whenever we talk about these, um, you know, extremist views, let's not go specifically to ISIS or Daesh, but whenever we talk about extremist views of Islam, you you sometimes say, you know, well, there might be some people that support it in the country and there are some people that are very opposed to it, but some people sort of, you know, side somewhat with um, with these, could subscribe to some of these views. Yeah. Um, is that sort of shifting now with this? Because you're saying it's incredible they have no morality, which I'm sure is one of the justifications for that that. Strongest. No, it's, no? It's, it, they don't really lose their support, but they do lose some of the support. And basically, even a, mo- the majority of these extremists in Saudi would not would condemn anything like this, where you kill your own family member. Uh, right. So that's like this. So so, so in that them, sense, yeah, for them in that sense, they see that as not exactly. If if they believe in Daesh enough and, and they believe in the extreme views of Daesh, they would just go out just like everybody else. Oh, they don't represent Daesh, these people. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's, I guess, often an easy cop-out. Uh, everybody um, uses it every, around every part of the world. So yeah. why not us? <laughs> um, Eric, is that, you know, I, I don't think we've heard from... Uh, from the Vietnamese point of view on I, I was just saying this is the proxy war for the entire world now in Syria and and Iraq is that at all a concern in uh, in Vietnam No not or? it's not a concern in Vietnam but uh, we did have a, an ISIS uh, situation I think it was more of an ISIS inspired attack much like San Bernardino in the United States as opposed to a kind of a direct ISIS operation in Indonesia which is of course the largest Muslim country in the world um, you know, the second largest Muslim country in the world is India. So I think a lot of people, when we talk about Islam, forget that Asia really is the population center of the Muslim world. And it's not the Gulf or the Middle East. Uh, so when it's just pure numbers alone. And in Indonesia, there is a lot of concern about uh, extremism. And, I, and a lot of that concern... Is it reaching, is it reaching uh, like the extremism and the... Are there people who 
claim being part of those organizations? Yes. Oh, absolutely. In southern Thailand, there's a Muslim insurgency. In the southern Philippines, there's a Muslim insurgency. And it's very much connected to Saudi Arabia as well. And this is why there's not an enormous amount of sympathy for Saudi issues. And I don't mean this anything personal, but particularly in the United States and the rest of the world, when Saudi Arabia has been exporting Wahhabism and extremism and extreme Sunni uh, politics outside because there was a deal made between the family and the extremist sheikhs that basically said, don't attack us inside the country, but we won't block you from going abroad. So in Pakistan, there's been a lot of Saudi money. Obviously, you know, Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda received quite a bit of Saudi money, and that affects uh, Afghanistan. So again, we're talking about South Asia, vast parts of South Asia in this part of the world where Saudi money and extremist money has played a very important role in promoting uh, radical Islam. And what we're seeing is it coming back into places like the Philippines, southern Thailand and Indonesia. So Vietnam is spared for the most part, but the region as a whole is still very much, very much concerned about the growth of, uh, of extremist ideologies. Right. Uh, and uh, Eric, you know, there, there's also a misconception in what you said, and, and that's what most people think, that this Wahhabism is the entire uh, concept of uh, faith and religion in Saudi Arabia. It's based on a lot of this violence, and that's, they're exporting it. But you should go and read the books of, for example, Muhammad bin Abdul Wahhab, which is based on Wahhabism, and you'll find the majority of the stuff that the violence that happens and they, they promote it, he, he clearly opposes. So the entire concept of that it's coming out of Saudi, it's kind of is, it's uh, it's a movement that's coming. But what's going on this. All of this extremism and this uh, problem, it's not purely Wahhabism. It's more of a Wahhabi movement mixed with the Ikhwan movement, the political mm -hmm. movement in Egypt and Turkey, the Islamic movement. They mix together with the concept of Wahhabism, and they are the result of mixing these two is where you get these extreme crazy people who are just looking for any way possible, even if it's killing innocent people, to establish their own concept of uh, an Islamic state. I will absolutely grant that. But at the end of the day, is the money is coming out of Saudi and the people are coming out of Saudi. Let's not forget that 19 of the hijackers in, in, 2000, in 2001 were Saudis. Yes, Eric. Uh, but, it, but, the no, but, no, but the, hold on one second. I let you speak. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the money in... Uh, Afghanistan, the money into Pakistan, the extreme, is coming out of Saudi Arabia. That is indisputable. There is, okay, we can dispute about Wahhabism and the, and the role of religion in it, but what is beyond dispute, what has been fact-checked, what has been verified by multiple governments, multiple think tanks, multiple independent researchers, is that Saudi Arabia has destabilized vast parts of the world with, a, with lots of its money. It's now sowing some of the seeds of that, and that is the problem here. Yeah. And so now it, it may have legitimate reasons why it said that, but it's indisputable that Saudi money has fueled a lot of this extremism over the past 10 years. Yeah, but when you say the 19 of the terrorists attacking 9-11 were Saudi, seriously, why are you even shocked that 19 are Saudi? How easy is it was it for Saudis to be in the States? It's just the people that were easy access. It's not if, 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 if they could have Pakistanis go easily into Saudi, they would have been 19 Pakistan instead of 19 Saudis. If it were Egyptians that had easy access to the country, it's not about 19 Saudis because Saudi is the extremist. And as I told you, most of this ideology, and, and if you go and look at the leaders of these uh, ideologies, they're not Saudis. The, the pure heads of these ideologies are not Saudis. They are usually Egyptian. They are usually Syrian, Iraqis. You almost never see a Saudi 
in charge of these movements. And that's, that's the concept. I'm not saying that Saudi did not play a part in this. Yes, Saudi did play a part of it. Saudi money did play a part in this. Uh, only an idiot would deny that, and only someone who is in denial would uh, deny that. But it's not as big of a problem, and it's not as... What you're saying is that it's not the only... Yes, it's not the only source of the issue. And, and, and a lot of this money is coming from everywhere. And, and some of it might come, and a, and a good percentage comes from Saudi, but a huge percentage of it that comes from Saudi comes from people who don't even know they're paying for these terrorists. This, mm. is, this is the problem that Saudi okay. had with donations. And this is what the Saudi government has been trying to control. I remember when I was younger, anybody can st stand on the street and collect donations. I'm collecting donations for uh, the Mujahideen in Afghanistan. God knows where that money is going in reality. Anybody can stand there and just collect money and transfer it. And, th yeah. and, that's, and, sure. that's where, and that's where was the downfall in Saudi government where it made it easy for money to be collected and it made it easy for money to be transferred out of the country. And that was the biggest mistake we ever did. Mm. Okay, I'm I'm gonna move on. Just I just wanna mm, just wanna add that you know, let's say that a lot of the money comes from Saudi Arabia. Um, it's obviously it's a it's an obvious thing to say, but it's very interesting that a lot of us, the Western world, is still doing business with uh, Saudi Arabia in a pretty big way. So yeah, but that's changing now. I mean, yes. that's one of the reasons why this is happening is the United States relationship with Saudi Arabia is really going through a big change in the sense that we are not. And, and again, I think patience with Saudi Arabia in the United States is growing very, very thin on human rights abuses, on women's rights abuses, on, on a lot of different issues. So and the United States isn't backing Saudi Arabia in, in its oil policy. The United States clearly is now a challenge. It's, the, it's exceeded Saudi Arabia as an oil producer. So there's competition. The United States is not supporting Saudi Arabia uh, in, in terms of Iran. The, you know, Obama and the White House have clearly placed Iran as a much more strategic priority over Saudi Arabia's interests. Uh, and so there is a chilling relationship. And I think the fact that the United States is now at $30 a barrel of oil hasn't really kind of hurt us that much in that sense. It's killing Saudi Arabia's economy. Um, we don't really care that much. And certainly you can see in the political culture today, very little support for Saudi Arabia in the, in the U.S. political system. So I think there is a big change going on. We're not dependent on Saudi oil like we were 30, 40 yeah, years that's ago. For sure, yeah. And so as a result, Saudi Arabia has to fend for itself much more with China and the rest of the world. Yeah, but that's, that's, that's a horrible policy to do in Saudi Arabia right now. You're not supposed to let Saudi Arabia economy be hurting. You're not supposed to do that because, trust me, look what happened in Egypt. Look what happened in Libya. Look what happened in Syria. What happened in Iraq. As soon as a government is too weak to control what's going on, the extremists come out very extremely strong. That's not the way to do it. There's different ways to do it, but this is the, completely the wrong way. And I'm talking this from because I live in Saudi and I can see what's going on there. And the, when the economy becomes weaker, these extremists become stronger. Because their views, they're saying this is what's going on. We're being attacked. This is uh, the concept of the West going against us. And, and th that's, that's a big problem. It's a complicated situation. To be honest, I don't know exactly what's the correct solution. The solution, for it. yeah, that's, that's yeah. The, yeah. The, the characteristic of all yeah. of these. We, and yeah. it's the case in, you know, if we talk about even going a little bit farther uh, the, the, in Iran, in, uh, yeah. in, in Egypt, as you were saying, do you, well, okay, that also could be an entire show on, on its own but uh 
Let's let's move. I thought that was that was pretty interesting. So thank you to the both of you for that spirited debate. Um, and now <laughs> let's uh, give give the talking stick back to Annie to let us know what the French people are concerned about and those weird French reform. I mean, work reform laws going into not effect, but they're uh, uh, a pre law, a preview of a law, a project of a law. Right. So. Uh... So this is a this is a sacred cow that's being uh, attacked in France, uh, and it's only a small part of what people are talking about in France. But it's it's very important because France, for a long time, has had a very inflexible job market by design, as a matter of fact, because they want to make it difficult to fire people. But of course, if you're running a business and you can't let go of people, well, pretty soon you start doing whatever you can to not hire people either, right? <laughs> and, I think, yeah, j just to clarify to people who might not know about this, but in France, it is almost impossible to fire someone once you've hired them. Uh, the only way you can do it is either both you and the employer, I mean, the employee and the employer agree that they want to stop working together and there's a, a way of doing it that way. Um, and if you, if you don't get, come to that agreement, then unless you are in such financial trouble that you have to make a, a restructuring plan for your company, which is a very serious official administrative thing, then you can't fire someone you have hired on a, a long-term work contract. So that's a key right. feature of the French work law uh, that is that right. French people are extremely attached to. Right. And so so as a, as a result, French companies hire, well, they do internships, which interns have zero protections, or they hire temp workers who have meager rights by comparison, or they go through subcontractors who are self-employed and don't even, I mean, they have no rights whatsoever. It's a complete parallel system. So France gets chastised by Europe and bigger economies all the time for being so inflexible. And we pretty much know by now that that's what's causing the very high unemployment in, in Europe, in France, sorry. So uh, governments have been talking about doing reforms for 30 years, but they, they never do it because it's very unpopular. And it's this time around, it's very strange that we're talking about it now because it's a socialist government in power. And the socialists are the ones who, over decades, have implemented a lot of these rules that made the job market inflexible. So it's bizarre that now they want to go back on it. But they're kind of needing to because the unemployment has just become way too high. And they can see that with competition all over Europe and all over the world, it's just going to get worse if they don't do something. So, so the changes that are proposed are one of the things you mentioned, uh, Patrick, is that it's difficult to for companies to lay people off, and that's because, as far as French law is concerned today, if you're a profitable company anywhere in the world, you can't lay off French employees. So imagine that you're a Ford Motor Company and you want to supply some parts for your cars in France. And, well, not supply, but you want to make parts in France. Right. Manufacture, hire French Ford employees. Well, it's five years later, you, you realize that this is a very expensive proposition. You can do this cheaper somewhere else. You want to close off. 
the, the law, the courts are going to step in and say, Ford Motor Company, you cannot do that because you're profitable. Ford will say, but we're not profitable in France. And the law, the court will say, we don't give a hoot. If you're profitable anywhere in the world, as far as we're concerned, you can keep paying our, the, the French employees. Meaning and if you're profitable globally, right? Exactly. If globally you're profitable, exactly. That's a, that's a good uh, distinction. If you're globally profitable, you can't lay off in France. And, and that's the part that they want to change. So they, they will say, okay, Ford Motor Company, you're a huge company. You're not, it's too expensive in France. Let's do this plan so you can get out of uh, having all these employees. Hopefully that will encourage more companies to give it a try to run their businesses in France. It's, sorry, go ahead. Keep going. Well, no, I just wanted to move on. So if you have a comment on this. It's just that this is going to sound extremely... I'm, I'm sorry if you're hearing uh, little noises in the background here. It's my wife being the fire master and going the fire going in the chimney, in the fire, fireplace, because uh, it's a little bit cold in the middle of the Finnish countryside, surrounded by snow. It's beautiful, but cold. Um, yeah, it might be difficult to understand for people who are listening to this who might think it's such common sense to say that if you're not, if it's not working out, you should be able to uh, fire people that you don't need because your company is not working out where it is. There's really a, an incredibly strong attachment to this notion that once you have a job, it's secure. The job security thing is... It's like, and the best way I can describe it so that I think everyone in the world will understand it is to make a parallel with another notion that makes no sense to anyone else in the world but those that are attached to it, and that's gun laws in the U.S. It, it, it makes no sense to anyone in the world that they, they, there should be such protections for, for gun ownership, and yet... If you try to touch or discuss that topic in the U.S., you're going to have, a, a, to put it mildly, a very hard time discussing it rationally because some people are going to be incredibly, you know, strongly voicing their opinion uh, in protection yeah, of that. Yeah, that's right. That's it's right. The, the same thing for yeah. Patrick, that's a very good analogy. And, and I think that both are equally as violent as the other. Mm. And the French system is – and I, it is violence – It's generational theft. And what it is, it's the older generations stealing from the younger generations. And what I mean by that is that you're looking at, at depression-level unemployment rates in France of young people, of youth unemployment, 25 30%. People aren't able to get their careers started. The long-term economic impact on France of young people not being able to get their careers started is enormous because the old people are holding on to those jobs under all of these state protections. And so they're protecting the retraite, they're protecting all of the retirement, they're protecting all of these social benefits that are really heavily weighted towards older people, healthcare, retirement, social security, all of these things. The young people are getting school budgets cut, are get, not getting able to get into the workforce. So I think there's a real generational divide here. And what Definitely. I mean by violence here, that it is demoralizing, it is dispiriting. And let's also talk about the banlieue here. Because the fact that not only white French people cannot get jobs, but minority and immigrant young French youth can't get jobs at much higher rates, 50, 60 percent youth unemployment, 
Where does yes. that lead to? That leads to the extremism and some of the problems, the social problems that the French are having. So this inflexible French labor system is contributing to all sorts of destabilizing social problems. That's correct. And, and what's strange about it is that there's a whole category of French people who are employed, but who benefit from no protections. And these people have not banded together. And I'm talking about the les artisans. So if you're a baker or a butcher or a, a small construction company, you pay into the system, but you get no benefits. Hmm. Meaning, well, you will get retirement eventually. But well, if you're a baker... <laughs> if you're a baker now, I think counting yeah, on your retirement is kind exactly. of, you know, hoping so, for... So if, you, if you're a baker and you get hurt on the job, you don't have sick leave. If you're a, a self-employed uh, translator and language teacher like I am, it's the same thing. If I get sick, I don't get paid. Yeah, and I'm, it's been that way forever in I'm, France. I'm, uh, I, as some people might know, I started my own proper company now as a podcaster, and I'm trying really hard to pay myself a uh, a small salary in order to have a little bit of uh, social protection. Uh, I'm managing to do it, thankfully, uh, but it's costing me so much money in order to do it. I, I can, right, it's, right. It's, and, and the salary is meager. But, um. but uh, Patrick, one very interesting point about that. There are, if I get my numbers correctly, I think 30,000 French people who live in the San Francisco Bay Area. There are tons of French people who are starting up businesses here in Vietnam, very hot tech scene that's here. You go all over the world and French entrepreneurs are everywhere. And yeah. Why? Because exactly what you're saying, the French, the French system is stupid, the French system is anti-entrepreneurial, the French system is completely weighted against innovation. So what do people do? They say, forget it, I'm out of here. I'm going to go somewhere yeah. else where I can actually start a business. That's and you true. see a, a dynamic That's... French culture abroad of innovation, entrepreneurialism, and you ask them, would you ever go back to France? They say, no way. Right. Well, and so, so what happens is France... Unlike the U.S., for instance, France still has very good uh, high school math. Okay, let's go yeah. straight to the point. French kids still get taught how to do math at a young age. And so you have people who are very, who can easily go into engineering of any sort. They can easily learn software engineering, uh, whatever engineering you want. So you have highly trained people who can't get a freaking job. Mm. And so they have to go somewhere else. And, and like Eric said, it's even, it's much worse for people who are of uh, foreign, you know, who are uh, immigrants because they don't or even second, get... Second or third generation immigrants. Even, mm. even second or third generation because they don't even get the, the support they need to get into this kind of math track in, in high school. And so if you let's... don't get that, then you're, I mean, you're screwed either way. But if you don't get that, you're very, very screwed. <laughs> you're screwed either <laughs> way. But um, let's talk a just a little bit more before we move on about the, you know, the that specific uh, work law reform um, and the way it's being treated. Because I've seen on social media and um, on, you know, on, on news in general, the the... It seems like the public opinion, maybe it's the vocal ones, but it seems like the public opinion is incredibly against 
those laws, which might seem, we, we're not going into a lot of detail about all of it, but which would really seem to be pretty common sense for anyone else. And I'm wondering if it's, um, if it's just the vocal ones again, or if it's, it's hard to say, of course, but there no, is this incredibly vocal group that is saying the, yeah. the left should do a leftist, uh, uh, should have leftist policies and this is capitalistic right-wing uh, uh, policies when right. it's like, no, it's common sense. But yeah, right, right. they are. No, it's totally a sacred cow and it's going to be very difficult because the vast majority of French people still, they have one of these protected jobs. Mm. You know, most people have a protected job. It's probably maybe 20, 30% of the population that that has no access to these protected jobs. And as soon as they do, they start saying, oh, yeah, yeah, we got to keep the protections. Right. And, and so it's the haves against the have-nots. And, and these changes... <laughs> it's ironic they- to, to, to think that that's what it is when those haves are saying we're defending the poor and the... Uh, you know, the, the, the people who oh, need protection against the big capitalistic companies. When I tell people as a freelancer, if I get sick tomorrow, I stop getting paid tomorrow. And, and yet 25% of my income goes straight to paying into these social programs, which benefit me in zero ways. <laughs> so, and when I tell people that they're like, Well, yeah, but you shouldn't be a freelancer then. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, it, uh, it does it does lead um, a lot of the French workforce. I mean, I don't know if it's the case in other countries, but certainly in France, a, a CDI, which is a long-term con- contract that you can't get fired from, is the holy grail that everyone wants to get. And of course, only a big company is going to be able to provide you this you with this. It's very hard, to, well, not very hard, but it, Unemployment shows that it's kind of difficult to get nowadays. Yes. And it, it's, you know, it makes me think of another asinine situation where uh, the, the left government, and, you know, there are a lot of things that are great about moderate socialism. France is not European socialism. That's what I would like to point out to people who are going to conclude from this, oh, you know, The, the socialism is horrible and socialism is not communism. If we're talking about social Democrats, there's a lot that makes sense. France has an extreme brand of socialism that isn't even communism. It's a completely different thing, but it's so extreme that it ends up hurting the people it is supposed to protect. And another example of this is the um, apartment renting renters protection laws, which make it so difficult for you to break a renting contract that there's a huge issue with the housing market, especially in, in Paris, because a lot of people want to live in Paris. It's the one big city in the country. <clears throat> um, and since it's so difficult... There are so many protections that prevent you from uh, breaking a renting contract. P- owners don't want to rent anymore. It's I could go right. on about this right. forever, but it's the same kind of vicious circle that ends up making it difficult for the people it's supposed to protect. Correct. So what they're talking about doing is, one, uh, make it possible for large corporations to lay off people, even if they are profitable globally. Two, they want to reduce the... Okay, so when when you get laid off from a job in France, you don't automatically get severance like you do in the US. You have to sue for your severance. 
and that's called the prudhomme. And when you sue for your severance, you almost always get it. Yeah. It used to if be you, that if you don't get it, you could get it, but usually you're not going to. Right, you, but you get it if you negotiate the the if you just yeah it's it it becomes complicated. But yeah, right. sorry, keep but going. it used to be that people would almost always get two years of severance from this court. Right. Well, over the years, they've chipped away at it, and it's been reduced to maybe more like six months. But French people don't know this. In their minds, their, their social protections are still, you know, solid. And if you ask French people on the street, they will tell you, oh, yeah, you get two-year severance. It hasn't been true in a long time, but that's what people think. And perception is really everything. So what the, the government is trying to do is to change that perception They're not changing They're doing very a ter much. Terrible job at it. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Explaining all of this. But that's what they need to do: is to change the perception that uh, that in France your job is secure forever. Okay. Um, I, I also want to say, with that severance you're talking about, that's not unemployment benefits. You also no. get unemployment benefits. Right, uh, right. Aside from that, so well, just to make it's it. Just, it's just like in the U.S. I mean, I've been laid off from jobs in the U.S. You get severance, that's one thing, and then you, you can qualify for unemployment benefits, which, which in I, France are, uh, they used to be three years, now they're two years, and they're talking about reducing them even further, yeah. um, which, but that's, reducing unemployment benefit is not part of this deal for now, okay? But the, the, but the thing that's crazy is every baker, every butcher in France has never had unemployment benefits, mm. none whatsoever. All the... Other people who do uh, just that, that own a shop, they've yeah. they've not had unemployment benefits or uh, sick leave or any, any or paid vacation or anything. I and think, yet, yeah. there's millions of us, and we haven't been together to protest about this. It's yeah. just really crazy. It's just, it's a crazy system. And I think the craziest of all is that uh, is that part where. It seems like common sense to everyone else. And that's, in, you know, part of the reason why I want to do this show, not specifically for the, for the, the French uh, labor laws, but more for managing to give different, different views on a similar issue where if you've lived in France your whole life and you've grown up in a certain type of, you know, social circle and you, all your friends have the same kind of, uh, thought process about things, you're never going to think that this is a, a weird or a problem. Uh, but just get out of your environment for a few oh, yeah. weeks and you realize, oh, wait, this is, this you is change your perspective. And, and it's the yeah. same for uh, so many of the things we're talking about. So just, just to conclude, let me just say that there are, France has some incredible assets as far as attracting big business to come to France. One, like I said before, French kids still get taught math, which makes it easier for them to learn a whole lot of technical skills. One thing. Second thing, France has really good health insurance and has a really good system that's extremely portable. So even I, as a freelancer, I complain about not getting unemployment or anything like that, but I do get awesome health 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 insurance, yeah. Right. So... As, a, as an individual, your health insurance is not tied to your job, which, which means that people can start tiny companies and not have any problem getting very good health care. 
So that alone, the fact that we can do math and that we can have good healthcare should be the foundation for us to have vibrant entrepreneur, entrepreneurship. Yeah. But we don't so far. And I yeah. think, I hope they can change that because once that gets going, France has a lot of potential. You know, that's kind of, that was my thought process for actually leaving my, my very secure and enjoyable job and thinking I have to try something because I live in a country where every opportunity is afforded to me as, you know, given my situation and I'm, I'm you know, privileged in that way. There's no reason I, I shouldn't at least try. What's the worst that can happen? I'm not going to go, you know bankrupt and not be able to afford healthcare. I'm always going to be cared for in this country. So so that should be the philosophy of more people. I don't understand why. And yet, the only thing you want is that secure, long-term job because... I don't know why. Anyway. Well, because um, you can't get a bank loan. You can't yeah. If you don't have a, a long-term contract, you can't get a loan. You can't ever move out of your parents' house. I mean, it's... You know, it's yeah. it makes life rough. It really does. That's true. Um, all right, let's move on. Um, Eric, if you want to mention, I'm sure you've had encounters with this uh, uh, thinking in, in when you were in France, when you were living in France. But if you want oh, to say I used to work for a French it. state company. Exactly. I mean, uh, I mean, and, I worked uh, and then for move on the... to Vietnam. But uh... yeah, no, I mean, I, I actually don't think France has as much potential. I think that is um, I don't think the French political system is up to the task for what the realities that they're confronting. Um, this uh, yeah, is, we, um, that's a big one. It, it, you know, I mean, I think we can be Pollyannish and idealistic and say we hope for the best. But at the end of the day, you know, you know, Hollande has not lived up to any of his expectations. Um, the, 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 the unions are strong. The political system is very deeply entrenched. Reform, you know, Sarkozy came in talking about innovation and job growth and kind of breaking down some of these walls. I'm not a Sarkozy fan, but at the end of the day, he couldn't do it. Um, and, and I just, I don't see the French economy being as dynamic as it needs to be in an era where money, labor, capital ideas are much more fluid and mobile than, than what the culture in France is, is permitting for. So it's, it was, I left the French workforce happily. Mm. It was an experience that I never want to repeat again. When I come here, people, when I come to Vietnam, people say, wow, it must be so difficult you know, in Vietnam, you don't speak the language. It's a communist country. It's authoritarian. It must be so difficult. And I said, you have no idea how much easier it is here than it was working in France. Wow. That is an interesting I mean, the Sandiques, the unions were on me at all the time. And, you know, there's this, and, you know France is, uh, is a revolutionary culture. And so it's, it's interesting, even, Annie, what you were saying about how come we don't band together to protest. And this was the culture that I felt within my organization. I was in the management and there was this kind of tension between management and workers all the time. And if the workers didn't like what we were doing, it was like, bam, to the, you know, it was a battle on. We're going to fight. Oh, yeah. We're going to protest. We're going to strike. We're going to do this. And that's yes. not conducive for effective management, that constant, constant conflict. Yeah. Now, that, that roots back centuries in French culture and history. So that's not something we're going to take away very quickly. But, but as but, you're but. trying to run. Yeah. But the power that unions have in France is very tenuous because it's based only on the law. French people do not belong to unions and mass. Okay? It's not their people. 
It's but just you go that the, the unions have a lot of power because the law gives them a lot of power. But that's right. But here's here's why I go back to go to any of the union protests on the street outside of Peugeot, outside anywhere. They are all gray haired people. Yeah. I do not see mm. young oh, yeah. people well, protesting on for mm. the union on the yes, union protest. Yes, yes, yes. On the yes. union protest. I don't and know. I, I mean, see mostly being, older people. Being a, a, a very young and spry 40 year old, and I've you know I've hung out with a bunch of younger people when I was in the movie industry. When I was, and I see a lot of younger. You'd be surprised. I see a lot of younger people being incredibly. Uh, uh, Convinced, not, you know, somewhat active, but convinced by all of these uh, ideas that you have to protect the, the, the people against the evils of the ruling class, which includes the managers and the bosses. It's, yeah. uh, it's not, I don't think it's as, which sort of serves to further your point, I don't think it's as entrenched in the older people uh, as, you, as you think, Eric, and The key issue for the unions is you're n you don't have to be unionized in France. Uh, and the unions still represent the entirety of the uh, population and of the working population. So it's incredibly difficult. You only have – it's kind of like, again, the uh, vocal extremes in the political party. Only the ones that are extreme in their views that are really convinced about what they're saying join a union and – rank up and become basically employees of the union. Um, and so those are the extreme views that are represented. And so anyway, it's a whole, it's a complete mess. Um, yeah, but I'm, I'm still optimistic. Call me, call me crazy. But I, I think, <laughs> I think the, the, the old guard will die off as it always does. And, and young people do because they have suffered from not having access to these jobs and a lot of them make do with whatever they can and i think you know entrepreneurship is is it's peaking its head i i'm seeing some you know some people saying well i'll just start my own thing um, mm. it's it's not as much as in the us but i'm seeing some of it so i'm hopeful patrick we're counting on you <laughs> well, and just to clarify, my company is still French. I'm still paying taxes in France. I'm still, for the moment, uh, a French, uh, um, you know, resident. So we'll see. I'm, I'm very much, and that's a conscious choice. I want to be, you know, for now at least, I want to try and make it work as a French person. So we'll see. Uh, all right, Eric, uh, take us out of here with, with stuff in Vietnam. Well, I'll take you not into Vietnam, but I'll take you into the South China Sea. And this past week and past couple weeks, uh, we've seen an alarming uh, series of, develop of developments that have occurred, which is China has been militarizing the islands that it, it basically has created out of nothing. And so there have been the deployment of HQ-9 surface-to-air missiles. There's also been uh, the deployment of uh, very sophisticated radar systems. Can, can you, can you this, explain when you're saying it created out of nothing? Yeah. So what the what the Chinese did. So we'll back up a bit a bit here. So the Chinese basically have laid claim to an enormous swath of maritime territory. Uh, and just to give you a sense of how important this is to everybody listening to this and, and no matter where you are in the world, five trillion dollars of annual trade goes through the South China Sea. 
So this is one of the world's most important shipping lanes. Everything that's made in China passes through there to go to the United States and Europe by sea. Everything that, that all the Japanese exports go through the South China Sea if they want to go down to South Asia. All oil transports go through for Asia depends on the sea. So the Chinese have this uh, this territorial claim, which is also claimed by uh, you know half a dozen other countries and nations. So Taiwan, Brunei, uh, Vietnam, the Philippines. Uh, and then you have this issue of the United States, which has been the guarantor of freedom of navigation for the past half century. So there's something called the what they call the cow's tongue or the nine dash line. And it's this basically this big, long extension of Chinese sovereignty that goes all the way down to Malaysia. And if you look on a map of Asia, you'll see how far that is. It takes me uh, three and a half hours or three hours to fly from here to China, from Vietnam to China by plane. So just think that is their territorial claim and not even all of it. So it is really, so as far is, as I can see, this, this is, is the largest land grab right. that's happened since the Soviet kind of walk across Eastern Europe. This is uh, uh, maritime. It's not land. They're just – It's not land. So what they did was they then made the, 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 the maritime claim and then there are these atolls. And they're really just nothing more than, you know, if you looked at the original ones, they were just nothing more than a little bit of sand that was popping up in some coral. And what the Chinese have been doing for the past two or three years is dredging up sand to actually create islands out of nothing. It's, it's remarkable. And if you can, you can see online the progression of these, these islands that have come from tiny little atolls to full-fledged islands. Now there's military bases on some of these islands with runways. So they're becoming effectively like aircraft carriers in the middle of this vital strategic shipping lane. Uh, one other key point here, uh, there's about, uh, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, if not up to a trillion dollars is what the kind of estimates are for of natural gas sitting under, uh, under all of this. Now, no one really knows if it's hundreds of billions, tens of billions, whatever it is, but there are expectations that there's vast amounts of natural gas. So this is also a potentially a carbon in, uh, play as well. So what's happened in the past couple of weeks is that the United States has been trying to push through uh, some naval operations through there to, to kind of reinforce the, the law of the sea, freedom of navigation. And there have been two in the past couple of months. Basically testing how strong testing how the Chinese react. Yeah. Now, Xi Jinping, he's making a gamble here, and it's a smart gamble, that, that Obama, who has had a very, very incoherent foreign policy globally, but particularly in, in Asia with regards to China – who has not articulated a vision, does not articulate a strategy. And as a result, it's opened up an opportunity for Xi to kind of play a game of chicken. So his kind of calculation is, is the United States really ready to go to war to protect these islands in the South China Sea and this concept of the freedom of navigation in the open seas? And he's making the gamble that they're not. And, and that's probably a pretty smart gamble. It's interesting that you hear the Republican presidential candidates who are now taking up this issue of the South China Sea potentially as a means for going to war. But that's just bluster in a political campaign that no one really believes that the United States would go to war over this because there wouldn't be the political support domestically for it. But it is very, very that alarming. Would be, that would be an actual war with China, apparently. If they're And remember what China is. China is the world's second largest navy. Uh, China is uh, has now parts of the Chinese Air Force are extremely sophisticated, in part because they've pilfered a lot of American secrets on technology. And they've they, so they've been able to close the technology gap quite quickly. 
would the would China kind of win in a war with the United States? Probably not, but it doesn't have to win. It just has to destabilize the system. Well, why do you even say probably not? It's, because the I United mean, States have... military, I mean, if you look at the Chinese military budget, which estimates run that's about 100 to $200 billion a year, the United States is five times that every year. Our technology is just so much more overwhelming. The fleet in the United States, is, uh, in, in Asia here, is incredibly powerful. Don't forget, the United States force projection in Asia is in Korea, in Japan. Now, there's questions about whether or not the United States could use the forces that are deployed in Japan in a conflict with China if China, if China does not attack Japan. So there's some legal issues that are there. But the United States military advantage over China is still incredibly high. And China's military, remember, has never been tested. Mm. So in the modern era, they've never used any of these things in real combat situations. The United States in the Middle East has been fighting wars now continually for the past two or three decades. So right. our admirals, our captains, our generals are battle-tested, are you know, much more sophisticated in actually working under combat operations. The Chinese have not been tested in the modern era. Right. So, so that's another reason why people think. The other thing is that the Chinese don't have the admiral history that we do. So our, and this would be a naval fight, remember. And the Chinese Navy is, is a new. They don't have you know, two centuries of admirals who have been sailing and fighting around the world like the United States has. And so if we're going to be fighting a sea war... Uh, with the Chinese in the South China Sea, then the United States has a lot more experience in that than uh, than the Chinese do. So, but it's I think what's happening now is that Xi and Obama made a promise that they would not militarize the region, and now with the deployments well, <laughs> of the HQ nines, that really kind of showed that that wasn't that was a hollow promise from Xi Jinping. Wow. Okay, that is actually probably with everything we've talked about, this might be the biggest concern of. All for today's it really, show. It, it's, a, like it, a... it's a scary... So the Chinese strategy here is that just as getting the British out of the Caribbean was what launched the American century because we had full control of the Western Hemisphere, the Chinese believe that evicting the United States from this theater of operations will solidify China's kind of hegemony in this region, in this part of the world. So it will have... What it, what it wants is the Chinese century, in part getting rid of the, the United States from its backyard. I, I don't think we can really blame them um, <laughs> when you look at it well, from their perspective. But uh, You know, the United States has been protecting trade and the, and the open seas for, you know, the entire post-war era. Yeah. So, and China has benefited but it, enormously. It's a, but it's a different and, China than it was, you it know. It is. 30 so years let, now, so. let's paint a scenario if the United States is no longer in, you know, guaranteeing or in Asia in the same way. J Japan goes nuclear. The Japanese Navy will become far more robust. That, the Japanese Navy sure, yeah. will bump up against the Chinese Navy. Taiwan will then start to militarize far more. South Korea will militarize far more. And we have, you know, Vietnam here uh, is spending incredible amounts of money on Russian submarine technology, money that it would be much better used in social development but it's militarizing much more. So we're getting, we have an arms race developing here. And remember, the issues of World War II are not resolved here. Europe resolved its issues with World War II. These issues are not resolved. There's been no treaty between Japan and China, between Korea and Japan at the well, end of still, World War II. It's still an it's, incredibly, you It's know, raw. Yeah. It's uh, very, very raw. 
very active discussions every year at the anniversary of this or that in Japan. You have should the prime minister go and and you know at the Yasukuni shrine and exactly. things like that. And so and you so have again, the Kuril Island with Russia even that's just for Japan. And you have the animosity between uh, uh, Korea and Japan that is still very raw very from raw. you know even before from World then. War Two. And, and, and from the colonial periods. So yeah, exactly. we have a lot of unresolved issues here. And what's, what's so scary about it is that the economic center of gravity in the world now is in Asia. So two of the three largest economies in the world are Asian. Uh, trade now is being increasingly dominated by Asia. The economic growth is still Asian. Uh, you know, so we, you know, this is a lot depends on stability in Asia for the rest of the world. Uh, you know, and because if China goes down, it's going to take everybody with it. If uh, I, I always Eric, say this. you're a pessimist. Uh, <laughs> I just I, want to say that. <laughs> I like to see the world hopefully as it is. I know everybody accuses somebody of being a pessimist. They say, no, I'm a realist. No, I won't go down that road. I, I just look at the world as a much more unstable and scary place than it's been in a long time. Yeah, so, yeah, I can hear I could, that. I could dispute that, but uh, what I would say is often, you know, there are, there's a lot of discussion about how the U.S. is running the world. And certainly I have a lot of gripes. With, We're not running the world. I think to an extent the U.S. is trying to influence a lot of the world and successfully influencing it as well. But I, I guess what I'm trying to say, you know, in the sense when you're saying the U.S. has been protecting the trade routes in Asia since or the, the end world. Of, of, of yeah, the whole world. Exactly. Oh, you were saying you are running the world. No, 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 no. We've been protecting freedom of navigation around the world. Right. The United States is that's... the only country in the world that has a navy that can actually extend the entire globe. Well, so, and... OK, that's what I'm what I'm I'm expanding this just a little bit to saying that the U.S. is running the world to make it into that, you know, oh, exaggeration yeah. that I'm famous for. Yeah, but it's but not. It it's... wishes it was, but it couldn't. OK, where where the U.S. has a, a, a large amount of influence, I think there's a tendency of saying, oh, the U.S. is doing this and that. And, and you know, wouldn't it be so much better if we were in mass in, in, you know, in charge of our own destiny and if we had this and that. And I understand the sentiment, but there's also a lot of uncertainty that comes with that. And I think more often than not, that uncertainty involves an incredibly painful process of figuring things out. And that's what we're seeing a lot in the Middle East. That what that's what, you know, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't work out as well. Basically, I guess what I'm saying is the devil you know. Right? If right. you can tell me and and anybody, what does the United States stand for in its foreign policy? So in the Cold War it was anti-communist. In the post-Cold War Afterwards, it was, you know, the freedom agenda that was that was the theme of George W. Bush. It was, you know, what does the Obama foreign policy stand for? There that's is no not vision. Fuck things up. But that's that's ridiculous. If that that's the lowest common denominator. So <laughs> well, what's happened in the Middle East? You know, he's been MIA. He completely messed up Syria. He completely is ignoring the Americas. His China policy, in part because he has no China specialists inside the NSA and the NSC, I'm sorry, the NSC, uh, he, he doesn't have a very coherent China strategy. Uh, you know, where's the, where is the line for, you know, U.S. power in Asia to that China needs to understand where it can go and where it can't go? So what the Chinese have been equated to is Ariel Sharon 
in, uh, in Israel. Because Ariel Sharon had a strategy of creating what's called facts on the grounds with the occupied territories. So by building the settlements out, once right. the settlement was built, that was a reality that could not be changed. And, that's and the Chinese what the are Chinese doing exactly that's what the Chinese are doing but, is they're building realities on the ground that once they're there, they're immovable. And the United so, States has not had a coherent policy to respond to this, and that is incredibly scary. I understand this. Uh, I'm actually scared now, and I want to listen to Annie <laughs> tell us that you're only I don't want to sound like I'm this, Donald but, Trump. Don't, don't get me wrong. So, I'm not trying to sound like well, Donald Trump here. So you're saying that the, the, <laughs> the foreign policy of the current government in the U.S. is uh, lacking at best. So uh, logically, we would need a power swing towards the Republican side, which means Donald no, Trump. No, because they don't have a vision either. This is systemic. This is not you know, partisan. This is that the United States at the end of the day doesn't understand its role in the world anymore and doesn't understand that it has the that it doesn't have the power that it thinks it has. It doesn't so, have the power to influence and affect the change the way that we used to in well, a kind of bipolar world with the United States and the Soviet Union. We are now one of many actors. We can't, you know, do things to influence China the way we want them to. We can't do things to, uh, to influence events in the Middle East the way we wanted to. Otherwise, they would not be going the way they're going. Libya is a classic example of that. We thought we could direct the outcome. Turkey kind of pointed out, look what happens when, you know, you foment revolution. Well, on the other end of that is actually not somebody who's favorable to you. Um, you know, the United States has a duplicity about its foreign policy. So it criticizes China and Africa for supporting dictators. But what does it do in Uganda with Museveni, who just got elected after 30 years? It congratulates him and, you know, and, and, and celebrates his, his victory. I They called the, Ethiopia uh, democracy. I mean, it's just, it's mind-blowing in the stupidity. I think and the, that is what we can't really count, get our hands around. The, the duplicity of the U.S. in its uh, uh, dealings with foreign governments and entities is not a new thing. But, um, well, but it's not. But see, but, that's what I'm saying is that what do they stand for? What is the vision? But Just like what, a company you could argue, needs a strategy. I, what yeah, is the strategy you could, American foreign policy? You could what also we, argue we, that, that the, the vision, the post-war vision was not necessarily – it also has had its set, its set of problems. I mean – It may standing strong against communism. Yeah, the people but, knew what we believed in. We believe in you know. Do we believe in free markets, open you know, open borders? Do we believe in kind of democracy? All those things are great, but you know, a president and an administration and a country have to articulate that so that allies understand where we are, so that people understand kind so of. So make we, it simple what, for the stupid. No, make it no. That's make that's it completely sim simple. Period. No, just like you have to be able to articulate, just like a company has to articulate a brand. You know, the, you know, the uh, countries and policies have to also be able to articulate that so people understand. So the Chinese, what's their grand strategy? I, I don't know. Well, I think Trump has it, articulated his, his brand pretty well. He, he has. And guess what? People are responding to <laughs> yeah. it. It does work. You may not agree with it, but it shows you the vacuum with which he's operating it. Yeah, I mean, Obama... Obama had an, amazing, had an amazing brand in, in his campaign. I guess what you're saying is you have to have the same kind of... of, of Your foreign policy strategy yeah. has to have a vision. The Chinese have one belt, one road, which is a global grand strategy for trade. Everybody gets it. Its military strategy is rooted in that. Its trade strategy is rooted in that. Its diplomatic strategy is rooted in that. We all get it. What is right. the United States strategy? No one understands. Turkey, you've been silent for about... I don't know, half an hour. Is there anything that, that inspires you in everything we've said since then? 
Well, I, I don't know what to add. Your French are crazy. End of story. I've already decided that a long time ago. <laughs> and the world is heading to World War Three. I've been saying that forever. So you know. If you say it long enough, eventually you're going to be right. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think uh, Eric uh, has a very good point. And uh, unfortunately, the U.S. has proven that it's too weak with, under the Obama administration. And it's really a disaster on the international circle. And I think the biggest disaster Obama did when he decided to back out of the strikes against the uh, Syrian regime. That just showed how weak he is when he bent over for Russia, when they said, you can't do that. And that's one of the things that hurt him in the Middle East as an entirety. And that's where Saudi Arabia decided and other Gulf countries and a few other Middle East countries to move either to China or to Russia for support and uh, establish stronger, better relationships. And and this is what's going to happen. And uh, while I do believe that this U.S. should not interfere in international affairs, but they already did interfere. They already established the environment outside there, and they should stand up to what they established and should defend it instead of just backing out and just making it go into ruins after they just started ruining it in the beginning. Yeah, that's the that's the whole argument about pulling out of of yeah. Iraq, and which completely understandable, but it was attainable. It's it's not like Obama could have stayed there for a long time, but uh, because it wasn't there, you know, let's stay a couple more years and we'll be fine. It was we have to stay there for fifteen, twenty, thirty years. It's not about um, staying there for fifty, twenty, thirty years. You have to be there and aggressive and enforce uh, what you've been doing there, not just go out and say okay and mess it go. up and then leave. yeah. Take care of it. We're done. We're yeah. out. We have but that's that's my point. It would have been a twenty years job. It's not a two years job. job. All right. So, but you. Started. It might have been a twenty year job. Well, guess what? You broke it. You pay for it. Yeah. yeah. And then started. now, what's happening is the United States have moved out, and, and the Shiite militias backed by Iran are now and, moving in. And actually, the U.S. So, is, and everyone else is paying I mean, for it anyway. So yeah, I mean, so um, again, the, the United States just is visionless in this, and it's just it's sad. It's very very sad. You know what? I'm going to go the Annie route a little bit uh, for the last uh, part of the show. And I'm going to recommend to everyone that you go watch Hans Rosling, Rosling's TED Talk. Uh, have you seen it, Annie? Do you know who Hans Rosling is? I don't. I've watched a lot of TED Talks, but not that one. So he's a statistician and he makes statistics fun and shows how much better the world is and has become and is becoming since, you know, forever. Basically, sort of putting a very strong front against the faction of everything's going to crap uh, and explaining how the entire world in every aspect of it, be it, you know, uh, lack of edu or better education, better uh, um, access to food and, and water, um, economy, uh, everything is going steadily and, you know, undisputably better of course, very of quickly course. in every part of the world. And it's it's a fantastic way of discussing I'm, I'm this. Sure, I'm sure he did that, all of those numbers, before uh, uh, Donald Trump came into the picture. <laughs> so let's wait and see. No, right, Donald well, Trump is a blip. You know, I, I love history. And so I, I tend to look at things over 
hundreds of years and things sure. are heading in the right direction. There's no question about it. If you take enough of a step, step back, I think it's very hard to argue that they aren't. And again, Hans Rosling... Uh, how about are, you move to the Middle East and then we'll see how you look at Even the in the Middle East. Watch, watch his TED Talk. I assure you, you'll have... Even you, Turkey, will have a slightly uh, brighter outlook on life after having uh, seen his TED Talk. Even war, you. A war and destabilized Yemen... A war destabilized Iraq, a war destabilized Syria, a war destabilized Libya, uh, uprisings in uh, Egypt, uprisings in Tunisia. Crashing economy in Saudi, crashing economy in other GCC countries. Uh, so, okay. Tell me the vision. The thing <laughs> is, no matter how crappy it looks today, I assure you that if you look at it, 10, 20, 30 years ago, it was even crappier for the world as a whole, I guarantee you. And and this is what uh, Rosling's talk uh, shows very clearly. For me, in this region, in the, in the Middle East region, 10, 20 years, 20 years ago, at least it was more stable, even if it was more crappy, at least it was more stable. It was more... Right, but sometimes you have to break things in order to make them better. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see. Um, all right. I think, I think, again, this is something that we could talk about for a long time. Um, but we have to get out of here and I have to go out in the snow because I have never, can you imagine this? I know I'm a Parisian, uh, uh, you know, basically not born, but raised Parisian. I've never been in a place where there is snow everywhere. And it's like I'm in a movie here. I've I've never experienced this in real life. I look outside the window, the inlet is frozen, the the fields are frozen, the trees have snow on them. It's like something out of this my world. And uh, so I have to go out and and basically bake a snow angel and cut some wood <laughs> and cut some wood. Yeah, because it's a little bit cold. Oh, it's too late to cut the wood now. If there's, there's snow everywhere, it's too late. You should have done that before the snow came down. <laughs> Actually, I have to bring wood in from the shed where the wood has already been cut by uh, my wife's family. So wise man, wise family. <laughs> um, all right, uh, let's get out of here. But before we do, uh, Turkey, can you please tell us where we can find your very particular brand of uh, depression and sadness on and the cynicism. internet? Uh, you'll find me on Twitter, Turkey Albala, T-U-R-K-I-A-L-B-A-L-L-A. And I do post from time to time. And if you get depressed easily, avoid it. <laughs> All right. Uh, Eric, what about you? And you, you can find my cynicism at the uh, China Africa Project. So I, I run a, uh, a whole kind of social media platform dedicated to China's engagement in Africa. We podcast every week. Uh, iTunes.com slash China Africa podcast. We got a, we, we're one of the few people who got an iTunes.com address, so I'm very Ooh. proud of that. Uh, E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R is the name on Twitter. Again, we podcast, and we've got a quarter of a million people uh, engaged in a really lively debate uh, on Facebook at Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. So uh, all things China and Africa, they're in one place. That's, you know, those numbers are pretty staggering. Congratulations. Yeah. It's amazing. We're very excited about it. Annie, what about you? Okay, so you can find me at uh, joinusinfrance.com. 
I run a podcast, which is mostly a very happy travel podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally, when I, when I invited you, Patrick, it was to talk about a more serious subject uh, following the, the attacks of no- November uh, 2015. But mostly it's travel to France, and it's called the Join Us in France Travel Podcast. Um, at, per- pa- at Paris Podcast on Twitter and join us in France on Facebook as well. Wonderful. Thank you very much uh, to you, Annie. For me, it's not Patrick on Twitter and Facebook, as I'm sure you know. Um, you can also support the show on Patreon. Uh, we're getting clo- very close to the uh, 500 uh, bucks per episode uh, goal. We're at 430 at the moment. And um, the, the, I started doing those next goal episode anyway, the special episodes uh, at the end of last year. I, I have a few ideas for other ones that I'm hoping I can get uh, some back in fairly quickly. Um, so we'll see how it goes between my discovery of Finland and the move to Japan. But there are opportunities there that I want to take advantage of. And uh, yeah, so it's 450 bucks at the moment. It's rising. So thank you so much to all of the patrons that are taking part in it. Um, if you're a part of the Slack at the, I think it's, yeah, it is three levels, uh, three levels, $3 per episode level. You have access to the Slack where uh, some people come in and enjoy the Frenchness of the, the, the Slack access. But we also have a Felix Club channel where I'm sure that a lot of people are going to be discussing uh, the current episode, this episode, uh, this month. So please uh, come and join us there. And uh, if you want to support the show, as everyone says in, the, in those Patreon campaigns, uh, if you think the show brings you a little bit of value, if you enjoy it, if you have fun, if you learn something, if you want to shout at your uh, telephone when you're listening to the show, please consider going to uh, uh, patreon.com slash the Club to contribute to the general effort And thank you so much to those that are already doing it. Um, That's going to be it for the show this month. I hope you had a good time. I certainly did. Thanks again to Turkey, Eric, and Annie for joining me. And we'll be back in about a month. See you then. 